0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we look back at the positives and the negatives in the history of the Catholic Church's response to the AIDS crisis from the 1980s to the present day. We talk with Michael O'Loughlin of America Magazine about his recent podcast, Plague. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michael Lachlan. He's the national correspondent for America Media, based in New York City. He writes regularly about the Catholic Church. He's also the author of the 2015 book, The Tweetable Pope, A Spiritual Revolution in 140 Characters. He's the host of the recent podcast, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. And he's currently writing a book that expands on the stories that are told in the Plague podcast. Michael Lachlan, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thanks for having me, David.
0: So I'd I'd like to start so that our listeners are following us at every point in this conversation with some background. And in particular, I'd like to ask about sort of what briefly the historical position of the Catholic Church has been on issues of same-sex attraction, homosexuality, gay, lesbian, bisexual issues.
1: I would say that the history of the Catholic Church when it comes to LGBT issues has generally been one of prohibition or condemnation. I won't go way back in history because there's uh, certainly experts who know that better than me. But for our purposes, I start kind of around the 1970s. Uh, You have the gay rights movement starting to make some progress, uh, sort of LGBT groups around the country asserting themselves. Societally, they are gaining some rights, some civil rights. And as a result of that, you have the Catholic Church sort of pushing back a little bit. The Catholic authorities in Rome had issued some teachings that led some Catholic theologians to say, well, maybe being gay isn't bad in itself. You know, the Church prohibits same-sex acts, but the orientation itself isn't necessarily a bad thing.
0: Let me make sure that I'm clear. So the distinction that began to be made by theologians in the 1970s, if I'm following you, is that acting on same sex attraction inclinations, homosexual inclinations was forbidden, but being identifying as a person with those same sex attractions at least for some theologians was seen as not being forbidden to have ology correctly
1: exactly so in the, in the church actually at one point says that the orientation itself might be morally neutral that is neither good nor bad, and that leads some uh, LGBT activists in the church, some theologians say, well, if it's morally neutral, maybe it can actually be a good thing. So it starts to, they start to have these interesting conversations in the 70s and 80s about what it means to be an, uh, a gay Catholic. But by the 1980s, the church is reacting against that sort of conversation. and They release a letter saying... Actually, the orientation itself is a disorder. It's not a good thing. It's not even neutral anymore. It's a a disorder. Something's wrong with that creation. And the prohibition on uh, sexual acts continues.
0: So if I'm understanding, so the the reaction to the reaction by the institutional church is to clarify, if we can use that word, and say, did I hear you correctly to say that even the inclination, even the desire for same-sex attraction, even having those feelings was considered to be disordered?
1: Yep, it's something wrong. It's not a sin in itself the sexual acts between two people of the same sex is still considered sinful, but the orientation itself, something's off, something's wrong, it's disordered.
0: And if I may, the, the clarification that they make is that the proper ordering would be a male being attracted to a female, a female being attracted to a male. Exactly. Now, am I mistaken? But at the same time that this is happening, the scientific community is coming to a very different conclusion. Is it correct to say that around that same parallel timeline, the scientific community is is learning more and more that these sorts of attractions have both social and genetic bases. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, of course. So as society is becoming more accepting of LGBT issues at this time, the medical community begins to rethink how they've treated people like this. This is happening, you know, from the 60s, 70s, 80s. And there's just a general acceptance that this is part of human nature, that this is, you know, something that that happens. And it's it's not a bad thing.
0: But in that window, when there were theologians who were saying, well, maybe the the identity itself is not a problem, maybe it might even be a blessing, if I can paraphrase what you just said, my understanding is that in that window, certain Catholic groups began to assemble with, even though they weren't necessarily acting on their inclinations, they were assembling around the identity within Catholic churches as visibly identified gay groups. Is that correct?
1: Yep. So there's a group called Dignity, which is started sort of as a lay group back in the 60s, I believe, in California. And this is a group that celebrates gay and lesbian Catholics. They hold special masses in Catholic churches around the country. Uh, It's sort of underground for a while, but by the time we get to the 80s, where the podcast picks up, they're pretty well established in big cities around the country. And they really are not holding back. They're celebrating their orientation, celebrating their families, their partnerships, and they really see themselves as being a part of the church. And that's sort of grown out of the growing uh, LGBT civil rights movement. So this is what causes some church leaders to say, maybe this isn't exactly what we want to be happening in the church.
0: You mentioned the LGBTQ civil rights movement. For our listeners who may be unfamiliar with that history, it has a significant starting date and a significant place of origin in at least in the American context.
1: yeah, so uh, you know we're we're speaking at the end of 2019, and this year was the fiftieth anniversary of the Stonewall uprising in New York City. There was a bar that catered to uh, the LGBT community that was subject, like a lot of gay bars across the country, to frequent police raids, sort of general harassment from civil authorities. And at one point, a group of people who were assembled there were subjected to harassment from police, and they said, you know, we've had enough. And they sort of stand up and fight back. And that's sort of where the modern LGBT rights movement is traced back to. So celebrating 50 years of that this year, and interestingly, also Dignity was celebrating its own 50th anniversary of this year. So you sort of have these parallel tracks in society and in the church.
0: And so if I'm following the timeline, and I want to make sure that my listeners follow the timeline as well, this had been an invisible community. And then in the late 60s, early 70s, like so many other movements, it began to find its public identity. And in the process of public identity, it began to find public solidarity. So people began to meet publicly in Catholic spaces who identified visibly as Queer, lesbian, bisexual, like there were a number of terms that were being used. And, and we've been using this term LGBT, and that's not even really a collective name yet. It's, it's more these groups who are sort of noticing for the first time that they are having sort of parallel public identities. And then, if I'm following, in response to this, there is a theological and maybe liturgical proclamation from the church the Catholic Church in particular, that pushes back against these public identifications gathering within the Church. What does that look like concretely for these groups? How does how does their interface with the Catholic Church change as a result of the pushback from the Catholic institutional hierarchy?
1: What's interesting is this group, Dignity, that's meeting in churches across the country, they're meeting in Catholic spaces. Dioceses are providing Catholic priests to celebrate Mass for them. They're able to uh, meet socially in parish halls. By the time we get to the 1980s, uh, 1986, church authorities in Rome say, "Uh, we don't like this. This is, like we said, when they decide that uh, the orientation itself is no longer considered neutral. It's actually a bad thing. It's a disordered thing. And they release a letter sort of outlining how Catholic priests should minister to gay and lesbian people. And as a result of that letter, a lot of these groups are kicked out of the parishes. Uh, So you had groups that were free to celebrate Mass suddenly no longer welcome in Catholic spaces. A lot of them find uh, more welcoming Protestant churches where they can hold a Catholic Mass. Priests become a little bit more weary of working with groups like this. Uh, You certainly have some committed Catholic clergy who continue to celebrate Mass, but it becomes a more difficult relationship. Interestingly, like here in Chicago, for example, as this is happening, Diocese form their own LGBT groups, Um, so you sort of see a split in the community, whether you continue to go to Dignity, which might be meeting in an Episcopal or Lutheran church, or if you go to the official sort of sanctioned LGBT group in the diocese. There's sort of a fracture in the community as people decide how they want to live out their faith while being part of this other community.
0: And we'll dig into this a little bit more as we get into some of the stories that you tell in your podcast, Plague. But maybe generally, you could characterize what the emotional response of these communities was to hearing from Rome, you're no longer welcome in our parishes.
1: Uh, There was a lot of pain. People had really struggled with both coming out in terms of just the wider society, whether it's their job or their family, and then they turned to their faith, and they were happy to have a home in uh, Catholic parishes. And all of a sudden, they're being told, actually, you don't have a place here anymore. Uh, One person I interviewed told me it was like being kicked out of his home. Uh, The one place where he felt safe, he was no longer welcome there. So it was really painful for a lot of people.
0: And in the process of this pain, That is around the same time that there begin to be reports about a new a new something that is arising amongst communities in metropolitan areas of homosexuals, particularly homosexual men. And it's it's first called a gay cancer, and it's a couple of different words are used to describe it, but that'll be the the bulk of what we're talking about for the rest of this hour. But for right now, as as these groups are trying to wrestle with their being kicked out of the place that they felt like was home. At the same time, they're having now to deal with this new illness that's arising among them. So talk to me a little bit about those parallel moments and what
1: sort of tensions those created. This has been a fascinating part of learning this history myself. You have a kind of more assertive gay community. This is in the late 70s, early 80s. And all of a sudden, like you said, you have this new mysterious illness that is really plaguing the the gay community. The first reports of it. In the New York Times, or in 1981, there's not a whole lot known other than young gay men are getting sick and dying pretty quickly. And as it becomes more clear what this is, what's happening, the community just feels under siege. And they are literally fighting for their lives. They're not sure how to stop the spread of the illness. They're not sure if they can rely on the government or public health people to help them through this. And for Catholics, for gay Catholics at the time, they're getting kicked out of the space where they felt like they could be themselves, where they could uh, worship together. So there's just a lot of uncertainty at the time. There's a lot of fear. And then coupled with being kicked out of their parishes, there's a lot of anger. So the community just felt completely under siege. And that was what I was trying to understand from people who lived through that time, people who experienced that firsthand.
0: And so if I'm hearing you correctly, at the time when they probably needed the support and community and solidarity the most— They lost the ability to meet in public spaces, at least in Catholic public spaces, and the church made institutional pronouncements that basically said, you're not welcome not only in your presence, but in your very essence in this space. Uh, Do I have that correctly?
1: That's right. Now, uh, what I tried to do in the podcast was show that there was still a distinction being made between being gay is not a sin, even if the same-sex acts are, and This was of little comfort to most of the gay Catholics I interviewed, but there was still a distinction that some other Christian denominations said being gay is a sin. And the Catholic Church did make an effort to say that that's not the case. It's simply we're prohibiting the acts. But still, as their friends were dying, as they were afraid of catching whatever was going around, that was not uh, the most comforting thing to hear from their church leaders.
0: And we'll get into all of this as our conversation continues. But for right now, let's take a short break. We're speaking today with Mike O'Loughlin. He's the national correspondent for America Media. He writes regularly about the Catholic Church. But we're talking about his recent podcast that just was released on World AIDS Day in 2019, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're speaking with Mike O'Loughlin. He's national correspondent for America Media, where he writes regularly about the Catholic Church. We're discussing his recent podcast, a six-part podcast called Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. So before the break, we were talking about the history leading up to the kind of relationship between gay communities that were increasingly visible and the Catholic Church which had originally sort of created spaces for them to meet and to have solidarity and then in around 1985-1986 made these public pronouncements that said you're no longer welcome here and that that was paralleling also the rise of this new disease which we eventually came to know of as uh, human immunodeficiency virus and AIDS acquired immune deficiency syndrome So I want to ask you now, as the producer of this podcast, Plague, I mean, that's sort of where your story starts, is right at the discovery of this new illness at the same time that these groups are being kicked out of their church homes. What was it that sort of drew you to want to tell this story, first of all, and why did you choose to start the
1: story there? So I am a gay Catholic. I've been reporting on the Catholic Church for about a decade now. And just because of what's happening in the news, a lot of that reporting has been about LGBT issues, uh, particularly same-sex marriage, uh, the fights between uh, some church leaders and civil authorities over laws like that. Uh, We're moving into civil rights issues about, you know, teachers getting fired from their jobs after it's revealed they're married to a same-sex partner. And I I thought that this is all interesting to me as a gay Catholic reporting on these issues. But I didn't really know how people navigated this. It all felt kind of fresh and new to me. And then a few years ago, I was having dinner with a friend who's a priest, and he has always made it a point to be very welcoming to LGBT Catholics. And I was just asking him, How did you come about to to be like this? Why are you like this? You know, you're in your 50s, it's not a given that you would be friendly to LGBT people. And he told me a story how he was a campus minister in the 80s at a school in Toronto. And he noticed that as HIV and AIDS was becoming more widespread, that there were people on campus being affected. Students were affected, professors were affected, and he formed a support group that met in the Catholic Center there on campus. And he said he would get about 20 guys each week and they'd come together and there was a lot of fear and pain and anger and just really uncertainty about where this was all going. He was eventually called into the bishop's office. He was a young priest, uh, so that's not usually a good sign. And he was told, you have to stop this group. It looks like you're supporting the gay agenda. And uh, my friend got very uh, indignant and said, you know, this is, a, this is a life issue. People are dying. We're supporting them. The bishop relented, and he kept the group going. And I was just kind of shocked and embarrassed that I didn't know any of this history. I knew a little bit about the AIDS crisis, but I'm, I'm 34, so I was too young to know, know much about it. And I just thought, I need to learn more. So I started looking at what was going on during this time in the Catholic Church, You have the gay community who feels under siege from society. What was the church doing? So it was all new to me. And that's when I started going through archives. Uh, There was a group called the National Catholic AIDS Network. And I went through their archives, which are located here at Loyola University in Chicago. And I just sort of pulled out little stories that looked interesting to me and began calling and emailing and tracking down people who were still around because we're talking 30 years now after the height of the crisis. And that's when I realized that there's this whole wealth of history That is sort of mine as a gay Catholic that I just don't know about. And I began meeting and talking and interviewing dozens of people over the last few years to learn what their stories were like. And you hear about 15 of them in the podcast.
0: So I want to come back to a phrase that you used in passing. And probably my listeners split at that moment in terms of their understanding of that phrase. And for some of them, it just passed by them. And for some of them, they suddenly had a little light bulb go off. So the phrase was, this is a life issue. And for my Catholic listeners, they probably understand the context of that phrase. But for Protestant listeners and others who may be unfamiliar with the long history of a phrase like, this is a life issue, unpack that for us briefly for just a moment.
1: Yeah, that's a great observation and one I probably took for granted because I'm used to speaking to Catholic audiences. So the Catholic Church, of course, is often associated with... What it calls life issues, so that means abortion for sure, end of life issues, uh, things like physician assisted suicide. Being opposed to both of those, there was a sort of internal debate in the '80s in the Catholic Church about should the Church expand what it means by life issues. There was a you know an Archbishop here in Chicago, Cardinal Joseph Bernardin, who was famous for proposing a new idea of understanding what it means to be pro life, and he said it, he called it the seamless garment of life, and that idea was that the Catholic Church should continue to focus on those issues, but also talk about things like nuclear war, uh, nuclear weapons, focus on poverty, how to make people be able to thrive in life. And so the point my uh, friend was making was that HIV and AIDS was a life issue because people were dying, and the Church had a responsibility to be pro-life in trying to help people uh, protect themselves and then understand what it meant to be living with this new reality.
0: I appreciate that clarification. I just want to make sure that I fully followed you. So, because the Church has— historically publicly come out on certain issues that deal with life and death like abortion like the death penalty these have come to be known in the church as quote-unquote life issues and following the example of someone like cardinal Bernardin here in chicago there was an expansion in the 1980s of what life issues might include and that i would imagine would be both socially and politically in terms of how the church is going to engage these and so when your friend who was the priest said this is a life issue Your friend was leaning into this new momentum around the expansion of life issues from just abortion and capital punishment. Have I followed you correctly?
1: Yep, exactly. And that's a debate that continues very much today. Should the Catholic Church, uh, should it focus on issues that have traditionally been seen as life issues, like abortion, death penalty, end-of-life issues, or should it expand what that understanding is and focus on what we might call social justice issues?
0: And so you mentioned that you were 34, and so these stories around the rise of AIDS in the mid-1980s and the Church's response— they were stories to you. They weren't lived experiences for you. So you were drawn to kind of understand this time. Were you afraid that these stories might be lost or were you simply exploring and you didn't know what you would find?
1: Both. So I would say that I recognize that we're talking about the 1980s, which is about 30 years ago. So if you were... 30 or 40 working in this space, you know you're 60 or 70 now. Some people have passed away, some really influential figures from this time who I wish I could have interviewed. But also, there was a motivation in that when it comes to gay history, young gay men, women, we're kind of on our own. Uh, You're not taught these stories in schools. That's changing a little bit now. You're not usually taught these stories by your family, and when it comes to Catholicism, at least, you're not taught these stories in religion. Like You're not hearing about gay pioneers in CCD classes on Sunday mornings. So it, it was kind of, I think, incumbent upon me to seek out these stories, to talk to my elders, those who came before me who have some wisdom to share. And I have to say, it was a really beautiful experience to sit for a couple hours at a time with these men and women who lived through this traumatic time and just sort of ask uh, what it was like for them. I remember uh, one person I interviewed several times, actually. He He said at one point that, he really appreciated this podcast because no one asks to hear these stories. It's kind of a dark time. It's a, and then the other thing, like I was saying, gay history is just generally not passed on. So he was very moved that there was someone a little bit younger interested in these stories. And the response from listeners has shown that there is a deep interest in learning this part of our history.
0: So as we're recording this conversation, the podcast has just released its fourth episode. And there are six in total And so you have now begun to get a little bit of listener response to this. So I would imagine that there has been a lot of positive and maybe some negative. I'd be interested if you are willing to share what some of the positive feedback has been and also, if you're willing, what some of the negative feedback has been.
1: Sure. The feedback has been almost overwhelmingly positive, which has been a nice surprise. So just this week, as the fourth episode came out, which profiles a Catholic parish in San Francisco in the Castro, the gay neighborhood out there, I heard from someone who said he hadn't been to church in several years. He's gay. Uh, he's Catholic. He said he's had a hard time reconciling those. But he heard the episode and decided to check out this parish and went went back to church just the, the day the episode came out. And I found that really moving that, you know, this is someone's life. And, you know, they were moved by what the stories they heard. And went back and checked out the parish and had a good experience. Other people have shared their own experiences with me. I've received really long email letters, people telling me, you know, I haven't shared this with people, but uh, my brother died from AIDS and our family was ashamed and the church wasn't really there for us. And they feel like their stories are being told now, that they feel like their own experiences are are being given a voice. So it, it really run the range of Catholics who were hurt at the time And also priests and sisters who kind of ministered away from the spotlight who are saying, yeah, I I know these people, like I understand what they went through. I went through something similar. It's just I haven't told anyone about this. So it's really opened up a whole new way to learn about this history.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Michael O'Loughlin. He works for America Magazine as a national correspondent on Catholic issues. We're discussing his recently released podcast, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. Well, we had just talked about some of the positive responses. Uh, Do you feel comfortable sharing if there has been any negative pushback? And I I know that we can imagine what some of the stereotypical negative pushback would be. Has any of the negative pushback surprised you, I think, is the question that I really want to ask.
1: Yeah, a lot of it has been kind of what I expected. Some people are upset that I don't go too much into teaching what the Bible says about homosexuality, uh, which, you know, that's... People can do that on their own time. These are capturing stories of people's lived experiences. I would say there's been some pushback that maybe I am not giving enough time to people who took issue with how some church leaders acted at the time, which I think is a fair point. Uh, We do make an effort to interview critics of the Catholic Church from the time. We interview members of ACT UP, which was sort of a radical protest group that existed in the 80s around HIV and AIDS awareness. We do interview members of the group. But I would say that there is a point to be made that the Catholic Church did have fierce critics at the time and that the legacy of what church leaders did at this time is still very much an open question. I'm going to leave that to historians. I'm just capturing what people lived through at the time.
0: And if I may, as a listener, the tone for the entire podcast series was really set for me by your choice of the first featured subject, a man named David. And in telling David's story, it is a story of a person who was deeply hurt by the Catholic Church, as we've discussed, but who couldn't simply say, I'm no longer part of this church because Catholicism seemed to be in his soul. Now, first of all, I don't want to mischaracterize him, and you've had a lot more chance to talk to him than I have to listen to him. So first of all, have I characterized him correctly, and what would you add to my characterization?
1: Yeah, it's a good summary. And the reason we picked David for the first episode, uh, his name is David Pace. He's uh, in his 70s. He works for an organization called Gay Men's Health Crisis in New York today, still doing HIV and AIDS awareness. But what, what we liked about David's story was it seemed to encapsulate the stories of so many people we talked to as we prepared the background research for this podcast. So David uh, grew up Catholic, came out as gay pretty young, was an early HIV and AIDS activist, and he was involved in this group Dignity we talked about earlier, went to Catholic churches in New York, and when Dignity got kicked out, he was really angry and upset and decided that he was actually going to step away from the church, or as he said, he bolted away from the church. And he tried for a few years to just not have anything to do with religion. Uh, he tells really moving stories about losing friends, losing his partner, Bill, to, to AIDS. And he just kind of stepped away from faith altogether. He said he needed to focus on surviving the HIV and AIDS epidemic and couldn't, be, couldn't muster the energy to fight the church at the same time.
0: I think there's one piece of his story that I really want to highlight for my listeners, and that is I think a lot of people who would have heard our conversation up to this point, they would say, well, this is a simple problem to fix. If you're Catholic and Catholics don't want you as a gay person, you simply go to a different church. Why not try the Episcopal Church? Because the Episcopal Church, to use their trademark phrase, welcomes you. He tried that,
1: didn't he? Exactly, yep, he did.
0: And what was the result of him trying to go to the Episcopal Church? Yeah, so
1: eventually he realizes he misses having a faith community. So he uh, meets with an Episcopal priest, says, you know, I'm thinking of coming back. I know you guys are more welcoming than the Catholic Church. And over a series of conversations, this priest just says, David, I cannot recommend an Episcopal Church to you. You are hopelessly Catholic. And David kind of understands, and he knows that, and he starts to hear murmurings about some more gay-friendly parishes in New York and eventually finds one where he's been uh, an active member for uh, a couple decades now. So he does make his way back to the church, but he does—but a lot of people do, I think, and sort of has these uh, different avenues that he explores as he's continuing his faith journey.
0: And, and this really speaks to the heart of what I wanted to get in, and I appreciate you sharing this with my listeners, and I, I, I encourage everyone to listen to this entire series because it's phenomenal. But you are trying to tell stories— Yes, you include those that are critical of the Church and those who left the Church, those who want to speak out against the institutional hierarchy. But what was so moving to me was how you were also trying to focus on those who, to use your phrase, are hopelessly Catholic. Those who, who despite the fact that the Church has pushed them off with a stiff arm, still feel drawn to something in their community of faith, that makes them identify despite that rejection. And to me, that was one of the most moving parts of this. And I I imagine it was difficult to stay on that balance beam of trying to tell that particular type of story. How did you manage to keep that beacon throughout the storytelling of
1: this? We were fortunate to come across a lot of people who were able to talk about their own faith journeys in a really nuanced way. There's people who leave and are angry, and I understand that, and we captured those voices. And then there's people who stay and they've never had a problem because their parish has been um, a good place for them. I'm more interested in the people who struggled with it, who really stepped away for a while, came back, or who found different ways to live out their faith, because those are the stories that I think a, a lot of people, a lot of people we interviewed say that this is an ongoing journey for them. This wasn't something that happened and it's over. They're still figuring out how to grapple with this. And as we see uh, in the news today, for LGBT people in the Catholic Church, it's still very much an ongoing conversation. And
0: so as you were going out and trying to tell these stories, how long ago did you start? Because the podcast just released on World AIDS Day, which was about a month ago as we're taping this. And when when folks hear this in the new year, it'll be about six or seven weeks Back and the entire series will be out. But how long ago did you start gathering these stories?
1: So I've been doing this research for about three years now. I started off kind of collecting uh, notes from phone calls, and then eventually I was so moved by what I was hearing, and I thought people should hear this uh, from from the sources themselves. So we started doing some audio recording. We have hundreds of hours of tape. And we had to distill it down into about six 30-minute episodes. So that's why hopefully there'll be a book after this, because then I can sort of expand on some of the stories. But it's been a long process, but the feedback I've gotten has made it worth the wait.
0: Well, and you work for America Media, which is associated with America Magazine. And probably the most visible person from America Magazine is Father James Martin, who has been vocal in public about supporting gay and lesbian and Bisexual and transgender persons within the Catholic experience, and he's gotten a lot of pushback from that. So I'm assuming, I may be wrong, correct me where I am wrong, that when you had this sort of nudge three years ago to start kind of researching these stories, you got support at America Magazine, at America Media Foundation. And what were some of the conversations that were there at the initial part of this? when you had the idea to get this started with your colleagues at America?
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, Jim has been a a big supporter of this project. Uh, His own work in LGBT ministry has been inspiring to a lot of Catholics. And he was able to connect me with several of the people we interviewed through his own work. At America, we make an effort to tell the stories that happen where the church and world kind of meet. And I think that this is a good example of that, people who were trying to live their lives in the world while also having some kind of relationship with the church. Uh, I'll say that uh, one of the producers on the show, uh, Eloise Blondio, she was expert in sort of saying, let's find people who live through tension and, you know, let's get them to talk about what that was like for them. So there was a lot of conversations about how do we tell this story while Presenting church teaching because it is a Catholic magazine, and we want to make sure that we're accurately describing what the church teaches. But then also letting people tell their own stories about how they've sort of how they've lived with that teaching, uh, knowing that their own lives often come in conflict with it. So we we try to live in that space where we allow tension to be present and let people talk about uh, their own experiences.
0: So am I hearing you correctly that you were trying to find interview subjects who were living in tension? But did I also hear that you and your colleagues were intentionally, pardon the pun, but you were also trying to move to places of tension in your own process of reporting the story?
1: Yeah, we wanted to be honest with our listeners. So when we talked earlier about the Church's view uh, toward homosexuality in general, that was sort of a history lesson for me, too. I didn't realize that the history of the Church's teaching was— it was in response to what was happening in society. To me, it was just always a thing that existed. So it was sort of a learning experience that I was taking listeners along with myself as we figured out what the church teaches and then how people live in light of that teaching.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Mike O'Loughlin. He's the national correspondent for America Media, where he writes regularly about the Catholic Church. And we're talking about his recent podcast, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com/notseenradio. That's P A T R E O N.com/notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Mike O'Loughlin. He's the national correspondent for America Media, where he writes regularly about the Catholic Church. He is the voice and the reporter behind the recent podcast, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. We've been talking about that production this hour. You had this idea. You went to your colleagues at America Media. You mentioned another producer that you've worked with. How big was the production team that helped to put this together? Like, I imagine when we hear it, uh, we're used to just hearing a voice and we think that the voice is the one responsible. But sort of flesh out for me, what was going on behind the scenes to help make something like this possible?
1: Yeah, it, it's it's an important point to make. Uh, people hear my voice and they think, you know, I'm just walking around with a microphone and interviewing people and it somehow comes together. That's not the case at all, as you know. Eloise Blondio is a great, talented journalist. Uh, she worked with me on crafting the stories, on finding interview subjects, on really kind of homing in on what is the tension here, what's going to drive the story forward. Uh, She was a huge help and really made the podcast happen. But then there was a whole team that was supporting us at the same time. Uh, Sebastian Gomes, our executive producer, Carrie Weber, Father Sam Sawyer. There was a group of audio people, uh, art people. I mean, there was just a whole big team behind this. It took several months to make. We're we're actually, as, as you and I speak, we're still finishing up the finale, trying to figure out What are the questions listeners have that we can answer about what the church is doing today in this space? Yeah, this is, it was a big group effort. And like I said, we interviewed close to 100 people and we could only have time to tell maybe a dozen or so stories. But we're hoping to get get across a sense that there's a lot of history here and invite people to kind of start exploring it on their own as well. You
0: mentioned the finale, and for listeners who have not had a chance to listen to the podcast yet, and I encourage everyone to do so, most of the podcast is told in the kind of narrative style that we've learned from This American Life and other programs like that on NPR, where you are the guide through a series of conversations where the highlights of those conversations are really curated for us as a way of moving along the narrative. What is different about the finale? What are you trying to accomplish there that's different from the other storytelling that you've been doing throughout the rest of the series?
1: What we're hoping to do is show that this is very much an ongoing issue, because most of the series is deals with history, and we sort of present it in a way that is almost like a documentary. Uh, with the finale, we are going to answer some questions from listeners. Listeners have sent me in uh, voicemails, emails, all sorts of different ways of asking questions. And we're hoping to show that the church did learn a lot from this time and that as it engages in HIV and AIDS care today, uh, it's estimated that one in four people with HIV in some countries in Africa are cared for by Catholic institutions. So it's still very much its work that the church does today. We're going to show that it's still an ongoing uh, issue and that the Catholic Church is still very much involved. At the same time, we're going to wrap up a little bit with things I've learned about what it means to be gay and Catholic Almost everyone I interviewed who identifies as gay and Catholic, I asked them, what is that like for you? Like, what, what, what do you want me to know about your own experience? And we'll share some of those answers as well.
0: So as you've been going along in your career, most of your career has been in print journalism. And Sorry. now you've, you've taken a new foray into audio journalism. I imagine that you have certain chops about how to gain the trust of an interview subject pretty quickly for print journalism. What did you have to relearn or what did you have to learn anew or fresh in the process of trying to get people to trust you with a microphone and doing audio capture as opposed to capturing something for print?
1: Yeah, it's a a good observation. Uh, As soon as there's a microphone present, people act very differently. We had some people who had great stories, but weren't quite able to get away from a performative aspect when they see a microphone. And unfortunately, that just doesn't work well when you're trying to do storytelling. Uh, Another quirk was when you're doing print journalism, conversation can be much more natural. So a lot of, uh uh-huh, oh yeah, continue. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Whereas in audio, you don't want that sort of back and forth. So you learn to kind of, you have to take yourself out of the story even more than you would as uh, doing a print interview. So there's little quirks like that I've learned. Audio is just so powerful. The emotion you hear in people's voices as they're recalling uh, the death of a loved one that is difficult to convey in print. And that has been a learning experience for me is letting people sit with the silence, letting them have pauses as they're trying to think, and then allowing uh, listeners to hear that. Uh, one, One challenging thing has been There's so much content out there that getting people to sit for 30 minutes to listen to a podcast is a bigger ask than asking them to read a 500,000-word article. So I, I would say it's worth it. People who listen to podcasts know that. Convincing people who don't that they should spend time with this audio has been something of a challenge.
0: I work a lot in storytelling, and I think a lot about storytelling. And one of the easy handles in storytelling is, you know, white hats and black hats. You have good guys and you have bad guys. It would have been so easy in a podcast like the one that you did, Plague, the Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. It would have been so easy to make the church the black hat, the bad guy. You chose not to. You chose instead to allow the church and those that were engaging with the church to exist together in their complexity. But now I want to ask you a structural question. In this narrative, since narratives in our culture are based around good guys and bad guys and the struggle between them, Who or what is the bad guy in your podcast?
1: That is a good question. And I say that sincerely. I'm not just buying time as I think of the answer. (laughs) Fear and ignorance is what everyone I talked to on all sides said was the bad guy during this time. So you had gay activists who hold the church in very low regard, telling me that fear and ignorance was present everywhere. It was present in the government, Wall Street, pharmaceutical companies, the church, but also in the gay community. There was a lot of stigma around HIV and AIDS early on, and there still is. And even church leaders who ministered in this space, but maybe never got on board with the gay rights movement, they say the same thing. Fear and ignorance is what drove drove the uh, HIV to spread more rapidly, what marginalized people. Uh, One of the one of the sad things that I learned during this time was once people became sick, they were often isolated. And that isolation drove people, uh, drove a lot of people to end their lives early. It just caused a lot of uh, fear and loneliness. And that's where a lot of the Catholic ministry came into, just spending time with people uh, when they were a- alone. So, yeah, fear and uh, fear and ignorance were, would be the bad the bad guy in this story, for sure. And you just mentioned
0: isolation. I think another thing that you do so well in this series, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church, is to push against that sense of isolation, which is palpable in the stories that are told, to push through to show how the community works so hard to maintain relationships. And I'm going to paraphrase one. You, it, I think it's in the second episode. I may, I may be incorrect about the chronology here, but there's an episode where you talk about the fact that You mentioned organizations like Gay Men's Health Crisis. There's a couple, a homosexual couple, who are taking care of each other, and one is more sick than the other. And then that one goes to the hospital or passes away. And then the other one has no one to care for them. And so the community comes in and begins to care in that situation. What was it like to learn that the community had that kind of intentional solidarity with their bodies, with the ill? What was that like for you?
1: It was... Understanding community in a way that I think I haven't quite experienced in my own life. That there was this general sense of fear that permeated this tight-knit community. Because this community was under siege at the time. It sort of had to be underground. The gay community is still not as visible as it is today. And then when it's attacked by HIV and AIDS, it does come together. And people start ministering to each other, really. Like, they don't see it in a religious sense. But it's kind of what church should be, in a way. People taking care of one another and making sure that they're okay. Early on, especially, I learned that there wasn't a whole lot for doctors to do. HIV was unknown. It was new. People didn't know how to treat it medically. But there was still this great need in terms of making sure people could be fed, that they can cook and clean. And that's where the community really stepped up. And that's where a lot of Catholic ministers also stepped up. We have their stories in there, too.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dahl. We're speaking today with Michael Lachlan. He's the national correspondent for America Media, where he writes regularly about the Catholic Church. We're talking about his podcast, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. Well, so as you've been reporting this story, how do you you must be thinking about your listeners. How do you hope your listeners will be impacted by the stories that you're telling here in this podcast?
1: A lot of listeners have been impacted by recalling their own stories from this time, uh, sort of sharing with me what they were doing during the HIV and AIDS crisis. Other listeners, especially uh, listeners who are not LGBT, they've written in and told me they had no idea any of this was happening. Even older ones who lived through it, they just said you know, I I lived through this time, but I'm straight and I just wasn't plugged into what was happening in the gay community. And I knew that HIV and AIDS was a thing. I just had no idea the stories behind it. And they said that it sort of opened up a whole new way of seeing what was happening at that time. And that I think is important that this history is passed on to gay people like me, but also to the wider world that something was happening here, that there was this incredible pain and suffering going on. And there were also people who stepped up and responded when they could have easily had done nothing.
0: Well, as you're reporting this, we've talked now about kind of who your imagined audience is and how you hope this will impact your imagined audience. But there's another audience here, and that is the institutional church. So as you're telling these stories, how do you hope that the institutional church will grow and change as a result of these stories being more public?
1: One thing that we know about saints is that they're often reviled in their own time, and it takes sometimes generations, sometimes centuries, for us to recognize the wisdom and the holiness that was present in their lives. And I interview some people who, some priests and nuns and lay people, who were sort of exiled and pushed away by the institutional church, and their stories are having a comeback now. So I hope that as church authorities continue to, grapple with, figure out how to interact with a newly assertive LGBT community that wants its place in the Catholic Church, that they maybe take a longer view of how are we acting now and how will that be viewed in 10, 20, 50 years. That, I think, is important for church leaders to to think about as they listen to the series. We've been fortunate to hear from cardinals, bishops, priests, uh, sisters who have been really moved by this story, and they remember that time, and they say that this has made them see it in a new way. I haven't heard much from people who maybe aren't impressed with what they're hearing, Uh, and those are the people I'd be curious to hear. You know, what do you make of this, and how might it affect how you view these issues today?
0: Well, what you just said raises a fascinating point. When we began the conversation, we talked about how the gay communities were beginning to have a public face within the Catholic Church. And then, with the onset of AIDS, there was... Like a double, a triple, a quadruple stigmatization, like the the whole notion of being closeted, the whole notion of being not wanted in society, the whole notion of being irregular, but now the notion of being a carrier, a vector for disease. In response, the community went in on itself and then it began to find a new public face. So what was the evolution of that public face from that first iteration with Dignity, the the organization that we talked about as an example, to its present public face? How has that shifted and changed?
1: In the church, like any other group, younger people are just not joining churches as much as they used to be, right? So LGBT people are no different. So there are today, Dignity still uh, is around. They just celebrated their 50th anniversary. They meet in Protestant churches around the country. Younger LGBT people, I think if they are still interested in church, they're kind of integrating at parishes. There's, you know, there are many parishes that accept LGBT people for who they are and, you know, they, they serve in leadership roles, they're teaching religious ed, they're re- doing readings at masses, giving out communion. And there's also still some sort of diocesan, officially sanctioned LGBT groups that uh, meet and provide a home for, for members of that community. Overall, um, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds for this. There's a lot, of, a lot of bad news out there when it comes to LGBT people who feel rejected by the church, who's lost, who have lost jobs because of who they are. I, I think that the church is really figuring out how to handle this new reality when civil society has so rapidly accepted gay and lesbian and trans people, but the church doesn't know how to respond to this. So I think we're living through a moment where we're, we don't know what the, what the end will be.
0: And as you're continuing to tell these stories, what you have mentioned is coming next is the possibility of a a book about this. So talk to us a little bit about how these audio stories will now translate into a a wider book form.
1: Yeah. So like like I said, we have so much tape where it's just impossible to present all of that for a well-produced podcast. And there are so many characters who I wish I could have introduced listeners to because they just have great stories and great personalities. A book will allow me to sort of expand on these stories. For example, in New York, we profile a hospital called St. Vincent's, which became kind of legendary with the gay community because it was located in an area where a lot of gay men lived and sort of became the hospital for HIV and AIDS care. But there's a lot of other hospitals in New York at the time, too. Uh, there's one called St. Clair's, uh, also run by the church, also provided a lot of AIDS care. And there's some really col- colorful characters who work there. None of that's in the podcast, but it will be in the book. So there's just a lot of people who I knew before the podcast came out and also a lot of people I'm getting to know after it's been, been out there a little bit. So sort of collecting as many stories as I can and then hoping to give readers an even bigger sense of what was happening at the time.
0: As you've been reporting this, I imagine that there are things that frustrated you. And so I'm wondering what at the, at the conclusion now of this process of reporting these stories, what is it that continues to frustrate you?
1: In terms of things from today.
0: In terms of things from today.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I think a lot of what I'm hearing from back then still exists today. So, for example, I heard from someone who said that he is gay and Catholic he didn't really have a hard time reconciling those things, but he felt like some church leaders did, and he just wanted to be listened to. He wanted to meet with them and explain like, why this worked for him, and he said that people weren't really willing to listen. And I also hear that today from people I've interviewed who have been fired from their jobs or who don't feel like, you know, they don't feel welcome registering at a parish and enrolling their child in a religious ed program. So I, I think once people get in the same room and sort of talk and, more importantly, listen, a lot of these things can be resolved. But there does seem to be sort of an unwillingness to engage in that kind of dialogue, which can be hard, uh, but it is important.
0: And in the process of this reporting,
1: I imagine that there are some things that
0: stand out that really keep you hopeful. What are some of those things?
1: David's story keeps me hopeful for sure. Sort of learning that, yeah, this feels fresh to me because I'm sort of living through it for the first time. But other people have lived through it before and come out okay at the other end. There's a guy we interview named Cliff Morrison. He's a, he was a nurse at San Francisco General Hospital, a member of a parish out in San Francisco. And he just said, look, you just have to live your life. You can't wait for people to you know, approve of who you are. You just go there, live your life, and stick it out. And that stuck with me. I don't think we can wait for people to tell us, I agree with everything you believe. You just have to be there and kind of claim your space.
0: Well, Michael O'Loughlin, I... I have only heard four of the episodes of your podcast, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church, but the four that I've heard really stay with me, and I i am older than you. I'm 48, not not in my mid-30s, and so I lived through a portion of this. I have dear friends who this affected directly and uh, and continue to be affected by this time. I, I am so appreciative of you taking the time and your colleagues taking the time to capture these stories to tell them with the care that you told them and with the sensitivity and I, i hope that it gets a wide listenership and that it will have the kind of impact that we've talked about in our conversation today May the Holy Spirit make it so. But thank you so much for being here and talking to us about it today. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. We've been speaking today with Michael O'Loughlin. He's the national correspondent for America Media, where he writes regularly about the Catholic Church. He's also the author of the 2015 book, The Tweetable Pope, A Spiritual Revolution in 140 Characters. And he's the host of the recent podcast produced by America Media, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church, and he's currently working on a book that expands on the stories told in the plague podcast. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijip. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio.